Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. So this evening, I'm sat with Matthew Lusty, Construction Director for Old War Offices, the former site of the Palace of Whitehall, where we turned into 125 key Raffles Hotel and 85 branded residences, appealing to only the ultra-elite. Now, Matthew's built a career with Stanhope, Battersea Power Station, and now Old War Office, with a reputation as the man for completing the biggest and most complex central London developments, be it Bloomberg Building, Apple's HQ at Battersea, or now the Old War Office. So Matthew, thank you very much for joining me. Very good, a very good evening to you. Uh, so let's get us started. Tell us how chapter one of your uh, your career story begins. Well, I was going to say thank you very much for that intro. It's uh, I didn't realise it was uh, it was as good as all that. <laughs> um, ch- uh, chapter one for me uh, started started immediately after university. I had a, a bizarrely for a construction or property. I did a degree in economics. And I had a, a terrific time at uh, university, uh, not enough studying uh, as it turns out. Left university with a degree and no idea what to do. And so like all my peers at university, I ended up going into accountancy. Very quickly realised the folly of my choice and uh, left that with not really any idea where I wanted to go. Uh, my father, who was an architect, he said, why don't you go into surveying? Because obviously I couldn't draw. And so uh, I went into surveying for really for lack of any other ideas and uh, got a job as a trainee surveyor to start with. And so really that kicked me off in the property and construction world. First question, Matthew, then, is what did you most enjoy about those earliest sort of days in construction? Well, I have a fond memory that uh, on valuation days with contractors, we were still allowed to go down to the pub and have a drink or two at lunchtime. Now, those days have long gone and for good reasons. And uh, but in a sense, you do miss you do miss that a bit nowadays, particularly when you're in lockdown, when uh, there's no contact with anybody at all. So that's quite a fond memory, actually. Uh, working with architects has always been been a pleasure as well uh you know it's it's I, I still find it amazing that architects can conceive these buildings in their head and then they draw it up i'm not jealous of them but i am i, I am in awe of their talents on occasions well i'm, I'm curious you know given sort of what i mentioned about the intro there of being sort of this master of mega projects what what were the earliest schemes you were involved in where did it all begin uh, the, the earliest scheme, uh, well, I joined this company and it, I, there were uh, four partners and they employed me and I arrived in the office day one and uh, the partner who I was working for, he turned around and said, oh, this is your job. And I said, oh, what is it? And he said, oh, it's an office building in south of London and you're going to do everything. And I said, oh, okay, uh, what is everything? And he said, oh, everything, you're going to look after it. And what he actually meant was I was going to do the surveying, I was going to do the project management, I was going to do the contract administration. Um, I didn't know any of that to start with. 
Uh, oh, and the surveying meant MEP as well as um, the building side, valuations, the whole the whole gambit. And uh, I was just thrown into it and expected just to pick it all up, which is a terrific way to learn how how things work. Uh, of course, you make a few uh, fundamental errors uh, as you go, but that's all part of the learning process, isn't it? Okay. Well, that's definitely one way to look at it, I think. Um, the, other, the other could be an absolute sort of a terrifying sort of introduction. I'm surprised you didn't pick up your calculator and go back to accountancy. Uh, it, it's, it was terrifying in one sense, but in another sense is um, you, 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 you sink or swim. And of course, you, know, you swim very hard to make sure you don't, you don't sink. And after that, I ended up working on other jobs. So, uh, uh, we, yeah, they ended up doing a lot of uh, banking fit-outs in the city of London as well, so big trading floors. Uh, and I ended up do, picking up those as well. And uh, uh, we had one very memorable uh, project was Bearings' uh, new headquarters, of which uh, there was a chap, for those of the, the right age, a chap called Nick Leeson in Singapore, who uh, did his uh, five card shuffle or whatever he was doing, um, and of course he the the bank went bust, uh, and along with the the, the new HQ which we were building at the time, uh, that all went on hold until uh, they, they were bought out by ING. But that was all fairly terrifically exciting as well. I bet, I bet. Given sort of the, the our audience here is sort of um, is looking now for how someone sort of puts together these building blocks then for 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 the most sort of successful careers. At this very earliest point, you know what was what were you doing then in order to sort of put the foundations together of um, of the latter career? What was you know what what particular lessons do you think you were learning? I, th- I think one fundamental one is get qualified um, in whatever discipline you do. You you need to you need to be qualified. Somebody described it to me as a little bit like having a violin. If you have a violin, you can always earn your living, whether it's in a concert hall or on the street corner. You you can earn a living, and I think uh, a qualification, whether it be RIBA or RCS or whatever it is, it gives you that comfort uh, that uh, you can always earn a living somewhere. So that would be the fundamental thing I'd always recommend to somebody. Um, and then the next thing is just as much experience as you possibly can. I had a partner who I first worked for. He said to me, make sure that in 20 years time, you have 20 years experience, not one year's experience 20 times. And again, that's, a, that's a, an invaluable piece of advice is you, you've got to pack it all in because the time you have is actually remarkably short. When you're in your 20s, it feels like you've got to, the rest of the rest of uh, time put together uh, but it, it quickly goes away and you've got to really just pack it in as quickly as you can so those are the two things i would recommend to anybody i'm i'm still thinking about that comment about about make sure you've got 20 years of experience not um, one years of experience 20 times over i think i think that's really interesting isn't it about sort of you know making sure you know you're progressing um, which probably means also making sure you know, you're making mistakes isn't it because you're trying new things and and make sure then you're not sort of vegetating and sort of regurgitating the same things because you know the value each time is is less and less isn't it i think well, the, the other the other thing to bear in mind is that uh, when you when you make a mistake in your career you've got to be honest about it and say I've taken this job or I've done something and it's not working. And you've just got to take it on the chin and do something about it. Um, I do. I have seen a lot of people who've made a mistake for, yeah, for whatever reason 
and then they've 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 just they've kept at it and rather than just saying this is not working i'm going to do something about it and i think you've got to be frankly honest with yourself and just do something about it i want to ask you now about stanhope yeah so stanhope's got a reputation certainly nowadays as being sort of synonymous with some of the finest central london office developments what was it like 20 years ago though in a funny way, uh, I don't know whether it's the rose-tinted goggles of hindsight, but I would almost say it was better. The reputation is well-deserved. Yes, a terrific, terrific gang of people, all like-minded. Somebody said to me, when you go and work for Stanhope, you're all, you all come out of the same jelly mould. So you might be a different flavour jelly, but you're all out of the same jelly mould. Hmm. And people who are very competitive and want to get the job done. And yeah, their reputation is it's well deserved, and I, I had a terrific, terrific time there actually. How much did you know about Stanhope when you joined? Um, a lot actually. Uh, I was approached by a headhunter, and uh, yeah, this was. They've got a lot to answer for. I should. <laughs> Your headhunters do have a lot to answer for, um, and this was still in the days, early days of computing, and yeah, I think we all. Yeah, computers now, everybody has multiple devices on their desktop. But uh, in the late 90s, it was still relatively uh, early days and going on the web was still relatively novel. So I went on the, the web and found out as much as I could then. Not as much as you can find now. And so I did a lot of research into what jobs they have, who owns them, uh, what makes them tick. And so when I went to when I went to an interview, which was multiple interviews over many months, uh, I had a, I had a, a file full of stuff to uh, to go back and ask questions on. And what do you think they saw in you in that in that sort of early stage of your career? Uh, well, I saw one of the one of the directors there, and I think the turning point was was I said, "Well, that's unfair on the contractor," uh, and I actually said, oh, "That's not fair," and he went, "Ah." Oh. Yeah, it's not about, uh, the ethos is not about maximising the return. The return is important, but being fair to people, whether it's commercially or the way you treat them, that's really important because uh, the world is uh, repeat business. You want to work with people time and again, and if you treat them badly, it doesn't happen. And so being fair with contractors uh, as well as other consultants, is, is, is essential. And I think that's one of the most important qualities which you, you've got to have. Okay. Well, then tell us about those earliest days. What, what projects were you working on? What was your role? Well, I, I, I was recruited to do uh, the fit-out for uh, Schroeder's in the first building on Paternoster Square. And we'd started work. Uh, we were also, Stonehope was also doing the show and call at the time. And I, I, I landed and started working on it. And after a few months, uh, J. Andrew Schroeder got bought up by Citigroup. And you know, as part of that takeover, they no longer required the new building at Christchurch Court. So I ended up moving into just finishing off the show core at Christchurch, which was interesting. I, I always liked Pathmaster Square. And uh, having finished that, I then did a uh, a business park up in Hemel Hempstead, which sadly wasn't a commercial uh, a success. Uh, and then after that, I went and worked on the Treasury, which was uh, Treasury and Customs and Revenue, which was a, a terrific building uh, facing uh, uh, Parliament Square. Um, and 
what was your role at this uh, at this time when you say you were running these these schemes? What what were you? Oh, you're you're, de- you're development manager. Okay, well, let me ask you then a question about sort of that transition because you know life starts in construction. Now you're then working with uh, with sort of Stanhope, Stan much closer to the client as the development manager. How easy was that transition? Uh, for me, it was relatively straightforward because I, I'd been uh, I'd been doing running jobs as contract administrator, project manager beforehand, setting up the appointments. So it was it was relatively straightforward. It wasn't um, it, it wasn't I wasn't a, a novice as such. So yeah, there was different ways of doing things, uh, different documentation, but the essential building blocks I already had in place. So I, I knew I knew the basic job. Uh, Stanhope uh, has you know, slicker processes. The documentation is well versed and it's suited. So you have a document for each consultant and each uh, contractor. Um, so it's, it's a much better put together uh, process, if you like. And for anyone who's who's in those those shoes at the moment, that project um, manager, country administrator, who is eager to make that move to, to the development management position, what advice would you give them? What how what can they do in order to make it as smooth as you made it? Uh, oh, I wouldn't say it was necessarily smooth. Um, I think it was. Uh, yeah, you you have to do a lot of work. Yeah, I think you've got to recognise that when you, when you become a development manager, you're 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 being given a lot of trust. You're leading a team uh, in a direction, and there's a lot of trust in terms of what your employer and what your funders and all of those uh, are giving you. And you've got to take that responsibility very seriously. You can't, uh, you, you know, if you take a team in the wrong direction, the financial consequences are, are potentially catastrophic. And I think you've got to take that responsibility very, yeah, you've got to take it, you've got to take it with the respect it deserves. It feels like now, sort of, you're you're comfortable in this in this role with sort of Stanhope in this earlier sort of phase. Do you remember what was the the most sort of memorable moments of of the earliest chapters of Stanhope, and what and what was that? Well, one one of the, the one of the things which I I, I uh, bore people with endlessly is that uh, when you first joined Stanhope, uh, Peter Rogers, he likes to do an introduction, and you you carry his bag to all the meetings, and you just go to all the meetings he's going to for about a month, and it's a terrific experience as well as allowing you to absorb the you know, the the, uh, the atmosphere of the company and all the the breadth of what it does. But you also go to some amazing meetings. I, I remember I went to one meeting with, with Peter, uh, his brother Richard Rogers, uh, Norma Foster, and Stuart Lipton. And Stuart is uh, Stuart's a very, very impressive character. And you know, just being invited to that kind of forum, you, you're just sitting there going, wow, you know, I, I've, I've been invited to the top table. If only to serve the tea, but at least I'm at the top table now. <laughs> <laughs> And what, out of interest, what did that mean in terms of for your development? What did, what did you sort of garner then from, you know, from these greats? Um, that they're human to start with. You know, they, they have an aura around them, but they are still only human. They, they make mistakes uh, like everybody else, but uh, they, they, just have, they just exude a sort of confidence which you, you can't fail to just pick up on. Uh, that uh, you know that there's a confidence that this is going to be successful. You know, whatever's put in our way, we will deal with, and the job is going to be successful. It's only a question of how painful it will be. 
let's let's move on then to is uh, as, as the years sort of roll on with with Stanhope. What was the next? What's the next big big gig whilst you were there? Big gig was uh, picking up the second phase of the treasury, which uh, so the treasury uh, is the first phase, which is facing St James's Park, and then I picked up the second phase, which is called Gogs Two. Gogs stands for Government Offices of Great George Street. Um, and that's what it was always called. It was always called that, uh, uh, that right from when it was built in the early part of the 20th century. And it's a terrific building. You know, what you had always thought an Edwardian building would be like facing Parliament Square. It, it was an amazing, it was a PFI, uh, which I'd never done before, never worked on PFI before, working with uh, Len Lease at the time. And it was a terrific collaboration between uh, development managers, the architects, which were Fosters, uh, Lend-Lease, who the, uh, the contractors, and it was terrifically uh, successful. Won uh, an armful, a fistful of awards, uh, well deservedly. Uh, the, the end product was fantastic. Yeah, really, really uh, you know, I've been around there a few times since it was finished, and it, yeah, it's it still exudes good design and good build. So a huge amount of pride in that job. And then I, I, I want I want to find out then what the what the next big project was. But before we sort of you tease us with with that, what do you I mean, what do you end up sort of learning? Do you think when you go from one project to the next? Given what you you mentioned that really interesting sort of topic about sort of twenty years of experience before before we got started, how did you manage to make sure that you? Each, each time you were pushing yourself to learn and to to gain experience in something else how, how did you personally manage that uh, you, you you literally dive in and when, when there's something you don't know anything about uh, you've got to you've got to, you've got to dive in and you've got to pick up the detail you can't um, uh, you can't learn something new if you don't know the detail you, you've got to it's hard work actually at the end of the day uh, you can't expect to walk into a room and know it all unless you've done your homework uh, you know some people they do walk in the room and expect it to be handed to them on a plate i'm afraid that doesn't work you, you've got to work at it well then let's get on to the the second chapter then within uh, within stanhope after after treasury what's the next big project milestone for you well, the next one is is Rothschild's headquarters in the city, which it's funny enough, it wasn't it wasn't that uh, that big a job, but it was uh, it punched well above its weight. It, it obviously had uh, Rothschilds as the the client. They'd been uh, living on the site for the last two hundred years. Uh, they owned the site and wanted a partner to help them redevelop it, and they selected Stanhope. Uh, we, we then ran a, a competition for the architect, which was. A f- absolutely terrific process, and we invited in uh, OMA, which was run by Graham Coolhouse. Uh, it was Eric Parry, uh, it was Herzog and Dumoron, and it was Foreign Office architects were the contenders. And what what, what an amazing and diverse range of architects to go for. Uh, interestingly, Rem came in, and he just he just knocked everybody's socks off. And uh, he, you know, the, the, the people from Austria said, we want him to do this job. And they said, we don't just want him, we want that proposal he's put on the table. Um, and so Ren was, uh, Ren was selected. He's, uh, uh, he, he's, how can I put it? He, he's, he's quite challenging to work for. I, I would say that's probably a, a fair statement. 
Um, There's a story or two there. Oh, there's a story or two there, but probably not entirely PC, I think. (laughs) Um, And then the site itself, um, one of my colleagues at Stanhope, he said, this is not construction, this is gynecology. It was a site constrained on all four sides. So the only way into the site was via St. Swithin's Lane, which if you know that area, that's a lane, um, which is four metres wide. Uh, and then it's closed. We had to close that lane in the morning rush hour and the evening rush hour because there were 600 uh, commuters per minute going up and down the lane. And we were building a 16-storey tower off that lane. So, yeah, logistically, it was probably the most constrained job I've worked on. Uh, it had party walls, it had boundary walls on all sides. It had rights of light issues on all sides. It, it, it was it was almost if you could make a more challenging job, uh, I think you would have struggled to actually do it. it oh, we had a, a sewer underneath. We had the Doctrine's White Railway underneath. Uh, the only thing we didn't have is we didn't have much archaeology. But having said that, we were uh, one of our neighbours was St Stephen's Walbrook, which is uh, again, if you're not familiar with that church, that is the mock-up, the full-size mock-up of St Paul's Cathedral which Sir Christopher Wren uh, built as a, a trial run before St Paul's, and we were backing onto the churchyard. So it had everything in, in, in spade falls. And then, of course, Rothschilds, they didn't want just a building built on spec. They wanted to build it for their own use, so it had the fit out. And it was a bit like building somebody's home. They, they inevitably uh, wanted to, to, to see everything, choose the colours, and so it, it was. It was a hugely challenging job. I'm probably probably the job which I'm most proud of, actually. Well, give. And I wanted to ask then about how you, as the development manager, how you manage then a customer like Rothschild. You mentioned about it's like it's like building someone's own home. What for anyone who who hasn't worked with you know um, maybe with you know, with someone as sort of as famous or sort of a notorious as, a, as that before? What, what can you share about how, how to get the best out of them in terms of that relationship? Well, it, I, think that, I think the first thing is, is that managing clients is, is, doesn't come out of a book. It's, uh, there's no, you can't have a, you know, A to Z of managing a, a client and expecting to work. Is that you've got to adapt all, all the ways you do it to suit the particular client. And if it doesn't work, you're going to be honest enough and say it doesn't. It's not working. I'll try something different. You keep on trying something until until it works. Until the client says, "Yeah, this is this is. I'm getting the information which I need to make the right decisions at the right time." Um, if you if you try and if you try and uh, dictate how you do it, you're going to get uh, you're going to get uh, pushback from the client very quickly. So it's being you've got to be light of foot. I think is probably the the most important thing. Okay then. Well, we are we're built, we're already building because you know quite an impressive sort of project list here, Matthew. Um, but it doesn't stop here, does it? What com- what comes next? That's the Rothschilds. Um, next one was Bloomberg, uh, which wow, what a job! What an amazing job. That's uh, uh, that had everything, everything, and uh, the kitchen sink. Literally the kitchen sink. It uh, was the biggest archaeological dig outside Italy. Uh, it was called the Pompeii of the North, I think the press uh, entitled it. Uh, we had Mola, 
scratching around in the site, 80 archaeologists, I think, if I recall rightly, for best part of two years. And they found, they found some remarkable things. Uh, they found uh, uh, doors, full-size doors, uh, shoes, because it was in the, the stream of the Woolbrook, it was waterlogged, and so the preservation of the, the artifacts was, was amazing. And yeah, they, they found tens of thousands of uh, artifacts. And then the, the, probably the most amazing thing is, is that uh, uh, previously in other archaeological digs, they, uh, when, when you were in Roman times, when you wanted to, to buy something, I want to buy my potatoes or whatever, although they came, they came to this country a bit later than that, you would inscribe on a wax tablet and give it to your friendly slave, and they would run off to the market and buy whatever they want, whatever it was. And I think they'd only found one of these tablets in the digs in London previously. And when they dug Bloomberg, they found, I think it was 215 of these. And it's the first mention of a, uh, a slave, an actual person in London. It was a slave girl. It's the first mention of London, actually, is the name of the city. Um, so the archaeological digging itself was probably enough to make it an amazing project. But then we, we, we then uh, added into it uh, for, uh, an entrance into Bank Station. There was a new entrance into Bank Station which uh, was not without its trials and tribulations. Um, and then on top of that, we had Bloomberg, Bloomberg as well with uh, Norman Foster's new development, uh, which was headed up by Michael Jones, a partner of uh, Norman's. Um, yeah, Foster's who I work with on the Treasury, absolutely terrific architect, challenging. They, they like to get their own way. Uh, and I say that in the friendliest possible way. Uh, and it, you, 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 you've, you've got to, uh, you've got to somehow try and manage it that uh, it fits within the budget and the timescales. Um, and it's an absolutely astonishing building. It's, I think we got, to, we bored everybody uh, with how many firsts there were on uh, Bloomberg. It was the, the deepest pile in London. I think it was 70 meters deep, like 2.5 diameters. Just think about a 2.5 diameter pile, absolutely colossal. The biggest concrete pour in London. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. Now, the other thing which was, I thought was astonishing is that uh, we had a, a, a terrorist bollard going around the bottom of the building. So one of these concrete bollards which would stop a, a terrorist driving, driving a lorry into it. Now, the only way we could prove that was to literally lock it up and drive a lorry at it. So we did that, uh, and it, it goes on. It goes on. Obviously, a Sterling Prize winner. Uh, it, it's a TV studio. It had everything in spade loads. Oh, it was a bespoke ceiling, bespoke floor, bespoke desk. Um, it had everything. Yeah, you, 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 you just. It was uh, never been done before. Was the phrase which we we used all the time. So given you know, given all that complexity, all those those firsts, how on earth do you, as the as the person in charge of this, as the development director, how do you manage to pull all this together? And not have grey hair. Oh well, I do have grey hair actually. <laughs> um, it's um, I think the the, f the first thing is is that it's, it becomes as a quite hard lesson is you can't do it all. Uh, you know, learning that you can't do it all. You can work every hour God sends, 
and you still can't do it all. And that's a, it's a bit of a sobering realisation that you've actually got to get people who don't necessarily work for the same company as you to do things for you. Um, and that's, that's actually quite difficult, funny enough. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to do is to get people who work, who work for a different company to go in the direction you want to. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing. Well, that's the, pro- that's the problem. What's the solution? The, the solution is, is you've got to get good people around you. Uh, and there's, 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 there's two things to that. One of them is you've got to select good people. But again, if you haven't got good people, you've got to replace them and get good people. That's absolutely essential. You can't do big jobs without a first-class team. And that's, that's across the board, consultants, contractors, everybody. And out of interest, from, from all these big jobs, all these, these years, what, what are the ingredients then for, for a first-class team? Um, you've got to get on with them on a personal basis. You know, it, it, you know, it's a little bit like having family members. On occasions you have tiffs, and you've got to be able to be frank with people and say, you know, you're not happy with them, or they're not happy with you. Uh, but then you've got to keep on, you've got to have a personal relationship which is robust enough that people don't get upset, too upset about it on a permanent basis. And ultimately, if it's not working, you've got to replace people. Uh, unfortunately, it does have to happen and uh, you, you, sh- you can't shirk them. Our audience, no, no doubt, sort of minds are probably uh, still sort of humming with all these firsts and all these sort of complications. But your career carries on, Matthew, doesn't it? And so from uh, the completion of Bloomberg took how many years? Uh, I think start for it to finish it was eight years. Eight years. Um, you, you know, it's funny how time you, you lose track of time on some of these jobs. I bet, I bet, I bet. Certainly something as fast-paced and sort of as, uh, as involved as that, I bet. But that also coincided then with the, with the end of the Stanhope chapter then for you in terms of career-wise, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, then, and then comes, as if, as if you hadn't had enough in terms of firsts, then comes Battersea Power Station, doesn't it? The Power yeah. Station, the Apple, Apple HQ. Um, tell us a, a little bit more about, about that job and, uh, and maybe particularly about any of the challenges, given, you've, given the complex projects you've, you've managed previous, maybe give us an insight in, in terms of how how this project experience how that differed uh battery battery obviously been underway for a huge yeah a number of years uh and uh yeah so the project was well underway and uh it it, it is it's curious Batty. it's a huge project absolutely you know the numbers are off the page but in terms of complexity there's a lot of it but is it particularly complex um not as complex as Bloomberg, funny enough, uh, even though it's virtually twice the size in terms of uh, cost. Um, but it, it relative straightforward. Uh, yeah, Bat- Batsy was uh, fantastic, and uh, yeah, I, I had I had I had a good time there. And in some ways, I look at it as the one which got away because I was approached by the Hindu just halfway through, and uh, they said, "Oh, could you have a look at this job for us?" And so. At that point, I was—I had a choice to make: do I do I stick with Battersea or do I go on to pastures new? And uh, you know, a bit of a tear, and I, I decided I'd ju- jump over to Old War Office. And I still sort of—I'm still torn with Battersea, and you sort of go, "What if? What if I'd stay? You know, should I have finished it off?" And in some ways, you—you always—you've always got the "what if" question in your head, actually. 
and I've never really come to an answer which you sort of think, mm, it's still, what if, I'd, what if I'd hung in there and, and finished it off? Uh, but having said that, the old War Office is another, another terrific building, uh, which is, again, uh, going to be iconic in due course. Well, I mean, like, like so many of all these projects you've involved in, you know, once in a lifetime, right? Oh, once in a lifetime. I've had, uh, uh, yeah, on the Treasury, people said that, that, yeah, once in a lifetime job, this one. And I said, oh, very good, very good. Then Ross Charles, oh, once in a lifetime. I said, no, 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 I've done one of those already. Bloomberg, of course, they said, that's once in a lifetime. No, 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 I've already done two of those. And then Battersea, the same. I, I think that the, the trick is, is to squeeze as many once in a lifetime jobs into your career as you possibly can. And I'm not doing too badly. I'm on about my fifth so far. So maybe I, maybe I can get another five, uh, five in before I have to hang up my boots. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll, we will definitely re, uh, sort of um, uh, come back to he- hear how you manage that, definitely. Um, well, you've given us a wonderful then sort of insight in, into the Hindus, your family, and uh, Old Warfis. Um Now, tell us, tell us the full story. How do, uh, tell us a bit more about, about the projects and your role there. Uh, the, well, the Old War Office is, uh, funny enough, it's just up the road from uh, the Treasury. It's in a similar style as the Treasury. It's an Edwardian building, hugely thick walls. It was built as uh, the, the precursor to the MOD, as the old war office. And it's where Churchill, uh, Profumo, uh, um, D.H. Lawrence, they all, they all inhabited it at some point. And it is where essentially the empire, the empire was run from it in many ways. Uh, it became a derelict and out of use and was sold sold on and it's been redesignated as a raffles hotel with with some super prime apartments 85 super prime apartments attached to it and our, my role is to run the construction side and get it delivered get it delivered on time uh, you know obviously to budget as well and most importantly the quality has got to reflect the heritage of the building and super prime apartments super prime people who buy these kind of apartments want super quality uh, so it's the age-old, it's the age-old thing that people want it on time. They want it to, to the right price, and but uh, not at the compromise of quality. Uh, so my, my job is to square that particular circle. But it's only three points, so it's probably a triangle. Well, out of curiosity, with these mega projects, can you expect to bring them on on time and on budget? What you can do, and this is what somebody told me, is they said. Managing it to getting it on time is very difficult. What you can do at the very least is you can tell people when it's going to be late, which is sort of a, a little bit of a negative way of looking at it because everybody wants to hear that, oh, you will deliver the project on time. But in some occasions, it, it's simply not possible. Uh, yeah, and to give you a couple of examples is commissioning when you're pulling all the things together to make the building work. That's one piece, one activity in construction where you can lose time, you can lose a week in a day. Um, and that's unmanageable. Now, the trick with clients, and it's not a trick or the skill with clients, is to say, you know, this has happened and the impact of this is this. The worst thing for a client is he expects to receive his building on Monday, he turns up on Monday, oh, I'm sorry, it's going to be three weeks on Tuesday before we can do it. That's the worst thing you can ever give a client, in my view. Okay. I want to now sort of uh, sort of turn our attention now to, to uh, in some ways, sort of benefit from your experience. 
So I've got I've got a, um, a couple of questions we're going to f- fire at you. To those who, who aren't familiar with running a billion pound budget, and from what I can discern, you know, listening away, you know, you've run at least three of these. How different are these to maybe a more modest sized project? Here's a strange answer for you. Big jobs in some ways are easier to deal with than small jobs. When you have a small job, uh, the horsepower you have and the the skill set of the people you're working with are small. And so the the most difficult jobs, in my view, are the smaller ones, where you end up with uh, a small budget to deal with. Uh, You end up with with a consultant and contracting team which is, you know, is not first rate. And those can be the most difficult jobs to deliver, in my view. So bigger, 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 bigger jobs actually give you, uh, uh, in, some, in, in some ways, are easier. Well, I'm sure that'd be solace now to, uh, to any sort of junior project managers listening to this just right now. Um, what would you say was the biggest challenge of all of them? And how did you overcome it? The biggest challenge? There's, well, the challenge is coming in various shapes and sizes. Um, technical challenges, of which there are many, are funny enough, actually relatively straightforward. It, it, it doesn't feel like it at the time, but they are relatively straightforward because you can work the problem. You can bring in some talented people, some people who really know their stuff, and you just simply work the problem. Um, so technical challenges you can deal with. Cultural challenges are extremely difficult, and by that I mean uh, different nationalities, uh, you know, working with Americans, it, it, it is, you know, we use the phrase, uh, I think it's a Churchill phrase, uh, a, co- a co- two nations separated by a common language. Uh, and, and it was very interesting, is that that's a, that's a challenge which you, you don't realise until it's, till it's upon you. And also knowing your client, the challenge of knowing your client. I had a client who uh, I'd worked with for a number of years, and we would be presenting these technical drawings to him, you know, architects, uh, jungle arrangements drawings, or whatever it may be. And it dawned on me, and I said to him one day, I said, you can't actually read drawings, can you? And he said, no, no, I can't. I, I don't, they, they mean nothing to me. And it's actually seeing what the other side, the challenge of trying to get into the head of the people you're dealing with. Uh, and that's... That's not something, that's something which you only realise that that's, that's, that's there quite belatedly when you see it in reality. And then there's the challenge, of course, of dealing with all these multiple challenges at once. Uh, spinning plates is the phrase we used at Bloomberg, where you're literally spinning dozens of plates. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a challenge, and you've got to simply delegate stuff. Uh, and you've got to just rely on other people solving these problems and reporting to you when they're getting into difficulty. Um, so you've got to trust people to do their job properly. Well, let me ask you another question then. And this, and this goes back then to what we were just, we were sort of saying in jest here about these sort of once in a lifetime. You've worked on five once in a lifetime sort of projects. Where does that drive come from? And what's, what makes you want to go pick up the reins to the very next major project? Uh, it's a sort of negative answer which gives you a positive momentum here. The negative bit is um, I get bored very quickly and so I actually want a job which is interesting and when, when I get bored I just make a nuisance of myself so I need a job with a lot going on to keep things interesting 
uh, and a lot going on means you're dealing with you're dealing with lots of different areas of the project. So whether it's being architecture, engineering, the cost, the program, you, you you're dipping your toe in all the various facets of the project, and that makes life interesting. Uh, I I'm, I'm afraid one of my big failings is I can't deal with boredom. As we start to sort of to wrap up, Matthew, let me let me ask you. Then we've been spent a long time now looking backwards. What's next? What do you next want to achieve in your uh, in your career? Uh, funny, funny enough, a reasonably clear answer to that is the choice you have, uh, or I, I have, is you can either keep on working on projects, or alternatively, you can start running a business. And I'm very clear. I enjoy working on projects. I work enjoy working with architects. I enjoy getting my hands dirty and get, uh, getting in there. Um, I don't particularly. I'm not particularly interested in running a business, and that in itself gives you directs the path which I'm going to progress in. I, I would like to stay in projects. It's uh, it's a terrific career. It's a terrific. Uh, you 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 do meet some terrific people. And it's terrifically interesting. So for me, another big project is is my uh, is my calling. Okay. And my last question, then, Matthew, is around success. Part of the reason why why I wanted to to get you onto the podcast is because of how successful you have been. The the sort of the serials of so these mega projects over time. Has your opinion of success changed? Uh, funny enough, I've never considered myself successful. Uh, I've always, I've always thought you could, you can do it a bit better. There's a different way of doing it. I could have tackled this in a better way. I haven't, I haven't done that well enough. So for me, success is sort of a little bit like chasing the treasure at the bottom of the rainbow. I've never actually got there. Um, I'm not actually convinced that it's, it's there actually. But uh, so for me, success is not something which exists. Okay. Well, I have no doubt, Matthew, sort of, uh, uh, our audience who've been listening to this you know, will, will sort of uh, agree to disagree with you there. <laughs> um, um, well, thank you very much, Matthew, for, for joining. I've really, really enjoyed you know, sort of hearing your sort of thoughts and your insight in, into you know, what has been a phenomenal career so far. So thank you very much. Well, let's hope it's not the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for your time. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.